All right, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 19, verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. Read the word and then pray. Get started. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous... Thank you, thank you, my love. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Lord God, we do ask that. We do, ask, we do repeat with the psalmist the closing words of Psalm 19. That the words of my mouth and the questions that are asked and, all, and the thoughts of our hearts for the next 45 minutes are acceptable in your sight. Give us discernment as we consider both your word and your providence in history. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to step back in time to the, to the 1500s, to the 16th century in England. If you were living in England at the time, the top headline in your newspaper, on your Twitter feed, on whatever news source you were following, would be, would be uh, speculating when the War of the Roses were going to restart. They'd been going on for the past 30 years, from about uh, all through the majority of the 1400s, from about 1455 to 1487. Does anyone remember what the War of the Roses were? No, you don't. No one understands the War of the Roses. You did a paper on it. All right, if you have 10 seconds to summarize the War of the Roses, what would you say? A few. There were a few complicating factors. Not quite. Henry the Seventh. Very close. So yes, it was an English. So the War of the Roses was an English civil war fought between the House of Lancaster, who bore as their symbol the red rose, and the House of York, who bore the white rose, hence the name. Uh, it ended roughly with Henry the Seventh's victory over the army of York at the Battle of Bosworth. It probably more important was his subsequent marriage to Elizabeth of York. So Henry VII was, he was from the House of Lancaster, Elizabeth from the House of York. So the two warring houses came together uh, and formed the new dynasty of Tudor. The House of Tudor was established. So that's, very, that's a shamefully brief summary of the War of the Roses. This concludes Sunday school this morning. No. <laughs> Henry and Elizabeth, so Henry and Elizabeth had two sons, Arthur, the elder, and Henry. Arthur died, uh, Arthur, Arthur died soon after being betrothed to be married to Catherine of Aragon, princess of the Spanish court. 
Um, but before they could be married, she died, and uh, Henry ended up marrying Catherine instead. He is sent upon his father's death. What's that? Arthur and Catherine were married? Oh, they were. Right, that was a big contention. We'll come to that. <laughs> so Arthur and Catherine of Aragon married. Um, Arthur died. Henry ascended the throne and married Catherine, became known to history as Henry VIII. Now at this point, so at this point, there's a lot we can say about Henry. But the thing to remember about Henry in this period of history is everyone was afraid that the War of the Roses were going to get kicked off again. So Henry was very, very eager. Well, he was eager to do a lot of things. Um, he was very eager to have a son because he wanted the new, he wanted the new Tudor dynasty to have, an heir, have a male heir to, be, to firmly establish the kingdom. So he was married uh, to Catherine of Aragon, his brother's wife, from 1509 to 1533. Um, they were, so 24 years, but Catherine only produced a daughter, Mary, uh, the future Mary I of England, whom Renton has talked about before. Um, Henry, uh, Henry was not happy about that because he didn't have a son. Also, he'd been messing around with a new girlfriend in the, pal the palace named Anne Boleyn. Actually, he'd also been, mess he'd been messing around with Anne and her sister. Uh, Anne had seen how that had gone with her sister, and she said, okay, you're not, you're not taking this any further unless you marry me. So, um, so Henry very famously went to the Pope and asked him to annul the marriage. He, after 24 years, he suddenly had this crisis of conscience. He said, this is my brother's wife. I can't be married to her. Uh, I need a divorce. Very convenient, very convenient uh, pang of conscience there. The Pope, the Pope looked at the political situation, which was very unstable. He was not in a firm position with either Spain or the Holy Roman Empire, whom Catherine, uh, Catherine was related to Charles V, uh, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And he said, no, I'm not giving you a divorce. So, Henry, so what did Henry do? He said, well, I don't care about the Pope. I'm the head of the church in England. So he broke, with, he broke the Church of England away from the Church of Rome and declared himself the head. Very important to remember, this is, not, this is, just, before, uh, this is just before the Protestant Reformation you know, is typically dated, beginning in 1517. So this is, uh, Henry was not, was not at this time and never was a Protestant. He was simply a very willful king. So he took the authority, annulled his own marriage, uh, banished, Ca banished Catherine, and married Anne Boleyn. Uh, Anne had one child, another daughter named Elizabeth, future Elizabeth I. Um, his, we, we all know where she ended up. However, Henry was not satisfied. He began to mess around again. He, uh, he really wanted a son. Anne wasn't giving it to him. She also had a very, she was, she, Anne was Protestant, came from a, growing pro, a family growing in Protestant influence in England. She kept pushing the king to try to reform the church. He didn't want to reform the church. He just wanted to run it and plunder monasteries. Um, so he got, tired of, he got tired of her pestering and not producing a male heir. So he had her falsely accused of adultery and incest, and she was beheaded. After this, he marries Jane Seymour. She was very, uh, she, not much to say about Jane at all, except that she bore him a son, Edward, uh, and died soon after. After that, he married Anne of Cleves. She was a German princess. He had sent the great court uh, painter Hans Holbein 
very famous painter. If you've seen picture, if you know, if you have some image of Henry VIII in your mind, it's because of what Hen, uh, Hans Holbein painted. Um, so Hans Holbein went to Germany, painted Anne's picture, and did what we might call today a Photoshop job on her. Uh, she ended it when she arrived. Um, Henry was so enraptured with her portrait that he married her by proxy immediately. And when she showed up, he was very, very disappointed. The marriage was never consummated. He declared it null and void because he could. Uh, and the two of them remained good friends till the end of his life. He called her sister Anne. After this, he married. He was 49 years old after the thing with Anne didn't work out. And so he, uh, he married Catherine Howard, who was 17. That went about as well as expected. She was executed for adultery. She actually, she actually did commit adultery, but so did he many, many times. And, that, and at this point, you're probably wondering, who are we talking about in Sunday school this morning? So we are actually no, we are not going to talk about Henry VIII, though you can be forgiven. This is all just to set the stage for our subject today, Catherine, Lady Catherine Parr. Catherine Parr is known to history, if anyone remembers her all, as the sixth and final wife of Henry VIII. Um, in the brief time this morning, I'm hoping, you, um, I'm hoping to help you realize that she deserves to be remembered for a lot more than just the last in a long line of, of English queens under Henry VIII. Catherine, Catherine Parr, she was born in 1512, likely in the month of August, although we're not sure, in, uh, in, we in the county of Westmoreland in northern England, in northwest England. Uh, ironically, she was likely named after Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, she was likely named after her. Uh, it's a very small world. And um, she was, and she was, uh, her, her father, her father uh, died when she was young, her father's name was Thomas, and her mother, Maud, did not remarry, which was unusual for the time, as we'll see in Catherine's own life. But Maud instead committed herself to the care and education of her children. She wanted to oversee her son's inheritance, and she wanted to oversee her daughter's, uh, her daughter's educations. She poured herself into her children's lives. This is going to have a profound influence on Catherine uh, in the years to come, as we'll see. Catherine's initial education was fairly typical of well-born women at the time, um, as in fairly limited, but Catherine was a voracious reader and an avid student and uh, was for the rest of her, and was throughout her life. She had a vast personal library uh, that moved around with her uh, throughout her life. She spoke, she was fluent in French, Latin, and Italian, and just for fun, uh, she uh, added Spanish to it later on. In other words, she was well-versed in the ecclesiastical and courtly languages of Europe at the time. She herself, um, she gave Henry some competition, although she did it legitimately. She was married four times over the course of her life. She was married first when she was 17 to Sir Edward Berg. He, there's not much to say about him. He died very soon. Um, her second husband and her, the one she was married to the longest was John Neville, Baron Latimer. And with marriage to Latimer, who was, uh, who was, who was older than she was, she married from the let's say, the lower nobility up into the peerage, into the contemporaries of, the, of royalty. Um, Parr was 20, uh, Catherine, Catherine was 22 at the time, Latimer was 44. Latimer was a very staunch Catholic. He was up in the, the still, still in the north of England, but with uh, marriage into to the house of Latimer, she was able to visit the court and begin to engage in uh, the life in London as well. 
Um, let's step back a minute. The reason that the context of Catherine's life is important is because this was a tumultuous, this was a new, a new era of conflict was rising in England. The War of the Roses were always feared, but as we now know, ultimately never returned. Um, Henry VII and Elizabeth's marriage did a lot to cool, cool uh, antagonism, but, it was st but uh, their son, Henry VIII, stirred them up again with his break from the Roman Catholic Church. It was a very weird situation because the Church of England at the time was Catholic, Roman Catholic in everything except for, except for um, Henry's uh, overturn of papal supremacy. He decided, the church would be, he decided the church would function exactly the same, just with himself at the head. So, this, so the growing Protestant movement, they, they were seeing all the problem, they were seeing all the abuses in doctrine and practice of the Roman Catholic Church and seeing that Henry was doing nothing to resolve any of that. The Catholics, on the other hand, were equally unhappy because they didn't believe Henry should, they believed the Pope was the head of the church, not Henry. So um, a lot of, so there was a lot of popular uprisings among Catholic, uh, ca the Catholic English at this time, particularly in the Northwest, right around Catherine, uh, right around, um, right around Catherine's home. Um, her husband, her husband was, her husband was a prominent Catholic. He did not agree, he did not agree with the uprisings but he was compelled to take part in them. Uh, at one point, the, uh, at one point the, uh, those who were revolting actually captured Catherine and her family and uh, the Baron's family and forced him to participate in the uprising along with it. He was later, um, he, was, uh, he was able to negotiate for their safe return, um, but you know, the, the castle was basically under siege and she had to manage the household with great privation uh, while the Catholics were surrounding it. Um, it's said that this was influential on her mind, which began to turn increase her her thoughts and beliefs began to turn increasingly Protestant uh, during this period. I thought this had something to do with it. Latimer, um, Baron Latimer, he ultimately he was able to negotiate for the safe return of his family, the restoration of his lands. He was exonerated for uh, for his participation in the revolt, but. He, uh, but his reputation suffered as a result. He had to keep a very low profile, and Catherine along with him. In spite of all this, it seems, uh, it seems from what little we can tell that their marriage was close and affectionate. At his death, he provided well for Catherine. Uh, she inherited all his, his lands and possessions. He entrusted the care of his daughter from a previous marriage. Her name was Margaret to Catherine's oversight. She looked after her for the rest of her life. And you'll, you'll notice this is a trend when we look at Catherine. Catherine is always looking at lost people and gathering them to herself. And so it, you, know, you see it particularly with, with her second husband's daughter. So in 1543, um, so in 1543, Catherine moves from the north of England, where she's been living with the Baron, to, uh, to London, and she becomes engaged in the life of the court. She develops feelings for, uh, for Lord Thomas Seymour, who was a confidant of Henry VIII at the time. However, she was, she was a very attractive woman, and the King Henry VIII noticed her and proposed marriage, uh, and at the same time banished Thomas Seymour to the continent, to remove, because he could. Um, Catherine felt it her duty to accept, um, and so her thir so she in 1543 she married King Henry VIII and became Queen Catherine of England. Uh, can, you can only imagine her feelings having seen read the news and followed the history of her five predecessors. It was contentious. It was contentious to say the least. It was a it was a delicate position to be in. 
However, um, Catherine wasted no time. She, she did many, many things in her, she and Henry were married for four years until his death, and she had a very, very, very busy uh, four years with him. One of the first things she did was to regather his children from the various homes and estates throughout England where they'd been scattered. He had completely written them, he'd completely written most of them off, particularly uh, Mary and Elizabeth specifically. Um, Mary had, one of the root causes of Mary Tudor's bitterness was the neglect that her father showed her because of his desire to divorce her mother. She was, she was forced to live upon the charity of others. Her, um, her attendants continually petitioned the king for an income to support her. He never, he ignored those requests. And so she was literally a, a noble pauper uh, for much of her life growing up. So Catherine, uh, Catherine brought her back into the court, welcomed her back into the family. She did the same for Elizabeth. Um, she did the same for Edward. She, would, she, also, um, she also connected with Lady Jane Grey at this time, the, the, uh, the famous nine-day queen. Uh, we might talk about at some point. And she personally, she was, only, she was only four years older than Mary. So the two of them were, were more peers than you know, stepmother and stepdaughter. Um, but it was, she was one of the few people that Mary actually, uh, actually had any regard for in her father's household. Um, she personally oversaw the education of Elizabeth and Edward. And she, did, and she put them under the best, uh, the best tutors that, uh, that Reformed Protestantism in England at the time uh, could produce. Now, this was still very early days of the Reformation. The term Protestant wasn't even in general use. But, but Lutheran thought, lingering Hussite, and uh, writings from Wycliffe, these were all stirring around. There was movements, and, there was, and her uncle was, the new, was Henry's new appoint, newly appointed Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. Cranmer is a name you may remember if you studied the Reformation in England. He was very, very influential uh, throughout Henry's reign, uh, and then ended up dying in Mary, ended up dying as a martyr during Mary's reign later on. Um, she was, she was, uh, he was Catherine's uncle and a very strong supporter of her. Through him and through her own influence, she worked with other early Puritans like Miles Coverdale, like, um, like uh, Hugh Latimer, like, um, like Cranmer himself. She, ha she hosted readings of the New English Bible in her home, and she talked Reformed theology with her husband all the time, which nearly got her into trouble as the wives of Henry VIII were prone to do, prone to get. She was, um, she was, uh, she was, many, many in Henry's government were suspicious of her because of her Protestant tendencies. Because remember, England, England was not Roman Catholic, but it was very capital C Catholic nonetheless. And so there were concerns about her, she probably, uh, what would have been called simply Lutheran tendencies at the time. She was, um, she was accused of heresy and treason uh, by several ministers of the court. Um, Henry, Henry was persuaded to issue an order for her arrest, and she nearly became the third of Henry's wives to be beheaded. However, um, she, was, she was forewarned of her upcoming arrest and went to Henry directly and told her she had simply, talk, she had simply been talking theology to get his opinion and to keep his mind off of all the painful maladies that his, uh, that his wretched lifestyle had brought him to. The two of them were speaking at the garden at the time. He agreed to forgive her. Soldiers arrived to arrest Catherine, and the king haughtily told, told them off um, and told them to get lost. And she was never bothered again.
It was after this time that um, Henry went on his last, it was, uh, it was just a year into their marriage when Henry went on his last campaign to the wars in France from July to September. And for the first, and she, he left Catherine as his regent in England uh, during his time. She's the only one of the queens to actually rule in her own stead for any period of time. Her regency council was, uh, was stacked with capable sympathetic members, including Thomas Cranmer, her uncle, and the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, they, they were very strong supporters of Catherine and of, the, and of her convictions, and she was able to rule fairly independently for those few months, and it was, it was a difficult three months. She had, she had to maintain the you know, standard government for England while Henry was away. She had to oversee provisioning for his, and mustering for his armies in France, she, saw, she had several royal proclamations in her own name, and she had maintained constant contact with a lieutenant in the north. Um, Scotland, as it often was at this time, was in an unruly state and had to be managed very, very carefully. It's said that her actions, um, her strength of character and dignity shown at this time, as well as her religious convictions, which were growing, were influ uh, had a great influence on her stepdaughter and the future future Elizabeth I of England. Catherine was only 32 at this point. She's also, um, amongst other things, she's known as the first woman to publish an original work under her own name in English. Uh, it was a book called Prayers or Meditations. She spent a great deal of time in prayer. She, spent, she was an avid reader of her English Bible, and she, and she wrote several books uh, with her reflections and her prayers. Uh, they were both bestsellers. You know, being a queen helps promote your books. Um, one of her books remain one of her uh, one of her prayers uh, was originally called a prayer for the king, uh, remains in the Book of Common Prayer in the Anglican Church to this day, and it's regularly used uh, by the Church of England to pray for Queen Elizabeth II. Um, we're going to read from one, her third book, The Lamentation of a Sinner, here in a few minutes, just to give you a taste of her beliefs. Um, we'll come to that, in a minute. but that was uh, that wasn't the one that wasn't the first one. So at the end, so after four years of marriage, Henry VIII dies. We won't go into that. That's an interest, uh, his death, his death scene is an interesting consideration for another time. He, um, he rejected all of the, he rejected all of the proto-Catholic ministers at the time and called for Thomas Cranmer on his deathbed. And he was unable to speak. He had, he was in a very, very poor state. He couldn't even speak in the last moments. But when Cranmer came to him, it said, uh, we, uh, history tells us that Henry took, grasped his hand tightly, as tightly as he could, and wrung it over and over and over again. It led Cranmer to hope for the king's repentance and salvation at the end. We'll find out one day. He had, uh, because of his high regard, because of his high regard for Catherine, um, uh, Henry, le Henry, like her previous husband, left her very well off, and she retired with Lady Jane Grey to Sudley Castle, in the back in the north north of England again, she married for the fourth and final time to her uh, to her previous boyfriend Thomas Seymour. Um, it turned out that marriage did not turn out to go so well. Thomas was ambitious and a bit of a flanderer, and he spent a lot of he spent a lot of the latter half of their marriage uh, trying to flirt with the future Queen Elizabeth Elizabeth Tudor. Um, uh, Catherine. 
originally dismissed it as harmless flirtation, uh, but later it became so concerned that she sent Elizabeth to live elsewhere. It was during this time, uh, it was during this time that Catherine became pregnant and gave birth to her one and only child, a da young daughter named Mary. Mary died soon, by the way, yes, I know, all high-born British women had the same names at this period. It makes reading and study very confusing. So this is Catherine Parr's daughter, Mary, who died soon after, and then Catherine herself passed away, um, passed away just a few days after childbirth. It was a malady then known as childbirth fever. Uh, they didn't know what caused it. We today know it was caused by um, poor hygiene practices surrounding birth. Um, you can save a lot of lives just by washing your hands when you're giving birth, uh, when you're giving birth to children. That was the only child that she actually bore, but she gathered children to herself throughout her life. And I think this is, up, and this, this is one point I'd like to draw out from her life and just remind us. Motherhood and fatherhood are intrinsic to our, and intrinsic to our identity as men and women of God. They're intrinsic to you know, the work that God's given us. And I'm not just talking to those of you who have, you know, who have children. I'm not just talking to you ladies who have children here this morning. Each of you is called to be a mother in Israel, much like Catherine was. Catherine looked around she saw every and took every opportunity she had to gather, nurture, to equip, to train, to enable uh, those around her to live for the Lord. And this is this seen in, uh, seen in many, many ways. We're going to read, read some of her selections here in just a moment. But it's, um, but it's very interesting to see that the more you study about Catherine, you don't, see, uh, you don't see major, you don't see a lot of major events, but you just suddenly see this woman had her hands into everything and the lives of everyone around her throughout this period. It's very fascinating to read. If you want to delve into her, um, if you want to delve into her further, Linda Porter has written a very excellent biography called Catherine the Queen. Uh, she pulls together every scrap of information that we, we know, which is still limited, and paints a very, very compelling narrative of, uh, of Catherine's life. Before I go further, let me, uh, let me read a few, books, uh, few passages from her book, The Lamentation of a Sinner. This book is, is very brief. This is a modern English rendition of it. It's, uh, it's, it's divided into three parts. In the first, she spends a great deal of time confessing her own sins and her unworthiness as a sinner. She wrestles with, um, she was the, this, this book was written while she was still queen. Its tone is very unusual for a, both a highborn lady and for a monarch, a European monarch at the time, because she, um, she holds nothing back in her confession. She, she keeps out the personal details. It's not as autobiographical as some other conver, uh, confessional works of the time. Uh, but she is very adamant about her un unworthiness. She wrestles with her many sins in the part one and her coming to faith in Christ. In part two, she meditates greatly on Christ's crucifixion and the sufficiency of the atonement. And then finally, in part three, expands upon the impact of the gospel and warns against the frequent sins that afflict many professing Christians. Just a few passages here. By the way, Catherine would be very proud of me. She was very, uh, I have written and marked up this book, written and marked up her book. There's a very common practice for readers of the time to write in their books uh, extensively. And Catherine, Catherine was a huge fan of that practice. So I've, I've honored her by scribbling in her book incessantly. <laughs> so this is from part one. She writes, how I have violated this pure, holy, pure, and most high law and commandment 
concerning loving God with my whole heart, mind, force, strength, and understanding. And I, as an evil, wicked, disobedient child, gave my will, power, and senses to the contrary, making a God out of almost every earthly and carnal thing. Furthermore, I did not consider the blood of Christ to be sufficient to wash me from the filth of his sins as he planted in his word. Rather, I sought such riffraff, the bishop of Rome, planted in his tyranny and kingdom. Through the virtue and sacredness of them, I trusted with great confidence to receive full remission of my sins. And so I did as much as possible to obscure and darken the great benefit of Christ's passion. And it is not possible to think of anything of greater value. No greater injury and displeasure to Almighty God our Father can be done than to tread Christ underfoot, his only begotten and well-beloved Son. All other sins in the world gathered together in one are not as heinous and detestable in the sight of God. And no wonder, for in Christ crucified, God shows himself to be most noble and glorious, even an Almighty God and most loving Father in his only dear and chosen blessed Son. And therefore, I count myself one of the most wicked and miserable sinners because I have been so much against Christ, my Savior. She goes on a few pages later and says, I professed Christ in my baptism when I began to live, but as life continued, I swerved from him even as an unbaptized sinner. Christ was innocent and void of all sin, and I wallowed in filthy sin and was free from no sin. Christ was obedient unto his Father, even to the death of the cross, and I disobedient and most stubborn, even to the confusion of truth. Christ was innocent. Christ was meek and humble in heart. And I, most proud and vainglorious. Listen to this line. Christ despised the world with all its vanities. And because of the vanities, I made it my God. Christ came to serve his brethren, and I desired to rule over them. This is the Queen of England writing this. Christ despised worldly honor, and I much delighted to attain it. Christ loved the base and simple things of the world, and I esteemed the most fair and pleasant things. Christ loved poverty, and I wealth. Christ was gentle and merciful to the poor, and I hard-hearted and ungentle. Christ prayed for his enemies, and I hated mine. Christ rejoiced in the conversion of sinners, and I was not grieved to see them return to their sin. By this declaration, all may understand how far I was from Christ and without Christ. Yes, how contrary to Christ, although I bore the name of a Christian." So much that if any man had said that I had been without Christ, I would have rigidly opposed them. And yet I neither knew Christ nor why he came. As concerning the effect and purpose of his coming, I had a certain vain, blind knowledge, both cold and dead, which may be had with all sin, as is plainly true based on this my confession and open declaration. She, she confessed that she began to despair as she contemplated her sins and had to turn to consideration of Christ again for hope. She writes, But his mercy exceeds all iniquity. And if I should not thus hope, where should I seek refuge and comfort? No mortal man has power to help me. And for the multitude of my sins, I dare not lift my eyes to heaven, where the seat of judgment is. I have so much offended God. What, shall I fall in desperation? No. I will call upon Christ, the light of the world, the fountain of life, the relief of all the weary, and the peacemaker between God and man, and the only health and comfort of all true repentant sinners. He can, by his almighty power, save me and deliver me out of this miserable condition. He desires by his mercy to save even the entire sin of the world. I have no hope nor confidence in any creature, neither in heaven nor earth, but in Christ, my total and only Savior. 
There's a lot more we could say here. I want to, uh, looking for one I want to see. She, in her final, in her final section, she has a passage that, she has a passage on, with an admonition of holiness uh, that I loved. She says, so much talk of the word of God without practicing the same in our living is evil and detestable in the sight of God. It is lamentable to hear that there are many in the world who do not properly digest the reading of scripture and commend and praise ignorance and say that much knowledge of God's word is the origin of all dissensions, schisms, and contention and makes men haughty, proud, and presumptuous by reading of the same. This manner of saying is no less than a plain blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit of God is the author of his word, and so the Holy Spirit is made the author of evil, which is the greatest blasphemy, as the scripture says, a sin that shall not be forgiven in this world, neither in the one to come. Because remember, Bible reading, as, as pedestrian and ordinary as that sounds to us today, was the great dispute of the English Reformation at this time. Tyndale, William Tyndall gave his life trying to get an English Bible in the hands of it, and here was a queen stating, here was a queen arguing for its dissemination as widely as possible, um, because the the argument was that that common people couldn't handle the word, that it would puff up, that it would lead to error, that it would lead to dissension. She said, "No, this is the one. This is the foundation we must build on." She writes elsewhere that. Truly, in my simple and unlearned judgment, no man's doctrine is to be esteemed or preferred to Christ and the apostles, nor to be taught as a perfect and true doctrine, but only as it does agree with the doctrine of the gospel. Those who are called spiritual pastors, even though they are most carnal, as is evident and clear by their fruits, are so blinded with the love of themselves and the world that they extol men's inventions and doctrines before the doctrine of the gospel." When you read um, her, her stepdaughter Margaret, so this was the this was the daughter of her, can I keep it straight? Of her second husband. Uh, at her, she wrote a um, she wrote a will, and in it she she opens by a confession of faith. So Margaret writes: First, I bequeath, yield up, and commit to the hands of my most merciful Father my soul. Yet all my whole substance, as well spiritual as corporeal, most steadfastly trusting unto his mercy, that he through the mercies of my Savior and only mediator, Jesus Christ, will now perform his promise unto me, that death may have no power over me, but that through his grace I may boldly say, O death, where is thy victory? O hell, where is thy sting? Being above all other things, most certain that trust in him shall not be confounded. And what I love to see there is this young lady's, uh, this young lady's profession of faith that sounded so much like her stepmother's uh, that we read about in the book. So just a little taste of the influence that she had in others. I think the biggest, I think one of the biggest influence, probably the biggest influence that Catherine had on history was through her, uh, through her stepdaughter Elizabeth, and when she became Elizabeth I. Elizabeth's reign was very contentious. Again, this is a brief, brief summary of Catherine. We don't have time to go into all that. I've, uh, I've dipped my toe in too, into too many deep waters already this morning. But under Elizabeth, uh, under Elizabeth the the fears of the war, of the return of the War of the Roses were finally settled, and the, at least the, the bloody physical war between Protestants and Catholics came to an end. Um, that doesn't, the conflict continued, but at least it was, it was pulled off the, battle, the literal battlefield for a time. With Elizabeth's passing of the act of, act of supremacy, 
which re uh, which return which strengthened her grip on the English Church and also the Act of Uniformity, which established much of what we know as the Anglican Church today. It was a rising. It was the, so we had the Catholics, Anglicans, and then the rising uh, the rising uh, influence of the Puritans, all warred for the hearts and souls of Englishmen during Elizabeth's reign. But it was a, but it was a very stark contrast to, to consider that as difficult it was with what Mary tried to do and her attempt to reform to return England to the Roman Catholic Church and the and the the exiles, the banishments, the executions that happened under her. Catherine had very little to do with uh, Mary's education. Mary's education was nearly complete, but she had a lot to do with. Edward and Elizabeth, and Edward, Edward's reign was uh, grievously very short, but he began. Um, but he was a godly king for the time that he did it. And then Elizabeth, Elizabeth was out to serve herself, but her stepmother's influence was on her, and she didn't try to return the church to Rome. She tried to uh, she tried to heal some of those rifts uh, in her country. And I think we can see that. I think we can see that uh, Catherine's nurturing care and concern in that. Uh, in, in what and the history of England that would follow, as well as um, I think she had a part to play in returning England from the war-torn, uh, the war-torn unrest that it had known for in the previous generation, to the great and powerful nation that it would become afterwards. So we wrap up today. Any questions on Catherine? Anything? Uh, any observations? Yeah, Bob. Yeah, which sounds so boring. Yeah, so Bob was just mentioning that Catherine really made her mark through family, which sounds boring, except it was the most revolutionary concept in the world she lived in because she was in the broken royal house of England at the time. Uh, family, was, family was a pragmatic convention at best, designed as a tool of statecraft. And that's the best you could say for it. But relationships, relationships were, you know, relationships were, were dismissed when they were no longer pleasurable or convenient. Uh, people were used and discarded. And uh, for Catherine, no, you know, she reached out to everyone. Any other questions? And let's wrap up and prepare for worship this morning. Lord God, your law is perfect and restores the soul. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple, equipping your people through your spirit for every good work. We thank you for that reminder. We thank you for uh, the reminder. We thank you for the reminder of the life of Queen Catherine and for her. And Lord, we are... We are inspired by, by her, the motto that she reigned under, to be useful in all that she did. Lord, let us be useful in all that we do. Let us reach out to those around us. Let us gather the lost, the hurting, the despairing, the sick, the dying. Lord, let them be, let them be our chosen company. Lord, let your light shine in us into the lives of others around us. Let us be mothers and fathers in Israel. And Lord, let us view... Let us view family, whether our own immediate, whether the church family, whether, uh, whether it be the sphere of influence you've given us, let us view that as our great life's work and the people in it. May we be found faithful for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.